Today's podcast is sponsored by the new Zondervan Comfort Print NASB 95 Bible. Keep listening to learn about the new exegetical preaching blog. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, the casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. You are listening to Mortification of Spin, uh, your one-stop destination for excellent conversation about things that count. And I'm Todd Pruitt. I am uh, really what you would call the lead um, host of Mortification of Spin, and I am joined by my two uh, co-hosts, um, kind of the Tontos, if you like of my Lone Ranger, uh, Carl Truman and Amy Bird. And uh, today, it is our distinct pleasure to finally shed some light on Amy Bird's latest hate-filled, feminist, left-wing, church-destroying book called Recovery. Of coronavirus as well. I, I think that there is very much a connection. I have to connection. on social media. That I think there's something we need to explore here. But Amy Bird's latest book, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, How the Church Needs to Rediscover Her Purpose. Now, there is nothing at all controversial about the title, Recovering from Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Um, And uh, I have given Amy a little bit of, of grief about that. But let me just, all kidding aside, Amy, uh, obviously this book has attracted a great deal of controversy, and I suspect far more than you expected, because you, you actually knowing the content of the book, have probably been thinking, goodness, I did not think it would stir up that much controversy. She's not that naive. She's not that naive. Well, now, I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet. I think, think, if I'm guessing, my suspicion is that Amy knew that she was going to poke the hornet's nest a little bit. But but I'll just tell you where I am, because I've had lots of people ask me, have you read Amy's new book? What do you think? And it's just been in the last several days that I've really read it. And I've got to tell you, Amy, this may surprise you because it surprised me. Um, I'm not nearly as ticked off about that book as I was expecting I would be. In other words... You're going not, soft in your old age. I, I, I really, not I really, nearly as ticked off. I mean, <laughs> say something a little was, more positive. <laughs> yes, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm still having a little bit of fun with you, though. Um, no, I. In all honesty, I was expecting to read it and come away with a, a, a fairly substantial list of principal areas of disagreement, and I was surprised that I didn't. And maybe I shouldn't have been surprised because I've known you for like. Seven well, and a half years or something like that. I know, Don't I know. Don't you even know me? And so, and so I, I actually felt a little bad um, after you. reading it that I thought, well, you know, goodness, I, sh- I should have known this. Now, there's some areas of disagreement, but primarily really in areas of application, not mm-hmm. in areas of principle. And that kind of 
I expect that. I encourage that. I mean, I think that's good. Right. So um, what I think we want to do in this episode is just kind of walk through some of your uh, central points, kind of your main thesis, and then some of the central points you make, ask some questions, uh, maybe kick around a few areas of application where we, where we may disagree on. But also I, I do want to, because I happen to know being a highly regarded member of the social media community, I happen to know that there are some uh, folks out there, and I don't want to make light of this, there are some folks out there that are taking um, some really, really cheap shots at you, and that's actually a gentle way to put it. There are some people that are saying some really, really awful things about you, and what I found in reading the book is there are some people that are saying things that just simply aren't true. Just not, they're not true about the book, not true about you. And I think what's happened, well, anyway, I won't go into that. So um, uh, I, I will just say, I will just say, as a small C complementarian, I'm not a complementarian in the sense of uh, having to worry about whether or not um, I receive directions to the closest Wawa from a woman. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a small C complementarian. Um, and, uh, you know, unless you're a hardcore patriarchalist, you're going to find yourself agreeing far more with this book than you disagree with. And, and I was glad to, to see that. I find it to be thoroughly anchored to the scriptures. Um, and again, not disagreeing on principle, but a couple of areas of application. But for the most part, um, not even that, but thoroughly anchored to the scriptures, which shouldn't surprise if you all have been following Amy's stuff for a long time. Um, and I also want to say this just from the introduction, and I really am going to turn this over to Carl in just a second, in, in just a second. Um, but um, you're very clear in the introduction. The church uh, needed to equip her people to uh, critically engage with the sexual revolution and its message of promiscuity, abortion, and gender fluidity. God made man and woman. He instituted marriage to be a unity between one man and one woman. Sex is the fruit of this unifying bond, and life is a gift from God. Men and women are not androgynous. Gender is not fluid, and when God created Eve, Adam had to sacrifice for her. Although God can create from nothing, he put Adam to sleep, used one of his ribs uh, in creating Eve. Adam saw that unlike all the other creatures God made, uh, she was suitable for him. Now, I don't know anyone who believes the Bible who would have any problem with those kind of underlying theses that that you're laying out there. And it's out of part of that foundation that the rest of the book flows. And so uh, that kind of helps sets the stage to, to kind of show if there are areas of disagreement, they're going to more lie in the area of, of application than principle. So um, I've been droning on too long. Uh, Carl, Carl. We're used give, to that, man. Wait, yeah, I know. Carl, given the fact that, that you are a gender denying feminist, yeah, um, and, and a cultural and, Marxist, and, and oh, cultural yeah, Marxist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> would you, would you like to begin the interrogation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think one of the things I, I'd like to address something that there are, there are a number of specific things about the book I'd like to pick up later, uh, Amy, to give you a chance to speak to. But uh, one of the things that uh, you're following, I, I, I'm not on online like you guys are, so I'm aware to some extent of the nastiness that's being hurled Amy's way on these things. But I, you know, uh, I'm generally, you know, too inept at handling the internet to, to be able to find that stuff with any great degree of efficiency. But it, it does interest me the, the cultural storm that surrounds the mm-hmm. book. And my guess is that in part, you know, we live in an age where uh, without a shadow of a doubt, the, 
the distinction between male and female. And we're going to use the word sex here rather than gender because our friend Emily Zenos may be listening. And she's had eight babies, the smallest of which I think was like 10 pounds. I have no desire for Emily to come knocking on my door and tear me limb from limb for using the wrong word. So the, the difference between male and female sexes or indeed the, the transition from sex to gender uh, linguistically is mm-hmm. it's a pressing issue in, in contemporary society. And I can understand why those who see that as a very serious threat uh, might be inclined to be very trigger-happy in how they respond to anything that they see might be hamstring or compromising the church's witness on that very important point. So culturally, the storm has, has interested me, seeing how, you know, so often happens, we get this sort of polarization Uh, driven a lot by fear, uh, I think, fear of compromise. If I were to say to you, Amy, okay, you're clearly, you're opposed to the way that biblical manhood and womanhood has been conceptualized and argued for typically over the last 20, 30 years. And I have a lot of sympathy, I have to say, with with the critiques of that, particularly as it tracks back to hip let's be honest, you know, unchristian views of God in terms of right. subordinationist yeah. views of the Trinity. They're just not Christian at the end of the day. Great yeah. sympathy yeah. With, uh, with your critique of, of, of biblical manhood and womanhood on that level. But the church is under pressure to distinguish between the male sex and the female sex. Given what you say in this book, can you sort of outline for the listeners in, in easily manageable soundbites uh, why, <laughs> why that distinction, why that distinction is, is safe in your hands, if I can put it that way? Hmm. I don't know if I can do it in short soundbites, but I'll give it a try because um, it's hard to download a whole book in a soundbite. But um, I think that we need to remember, you know, you put biblical in front of a word and then it, it gives it a, a heavy weight to it, right? Right. And we want to be biblical. I want to be biblical. Um, I want to be a woman who is biblical. Mm-hmm. But um, what I'm trying in the title, I think what I'm really saying there is that biblical manhood and womanhood is a movement. It's a pretty current movement in the last 20, 30 years. And it's gone off trails from the very beginning. And um, while I very much agree that the church needs to be a witness to society um, with the sexual revolution and all that encompasses it, um, that's, I feel so strongly about that, that that's a big reason why I am trying to point out the errors in this movement, because I think they do harm to their cause. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something much more rich and meaningful about our distinctions as men and women than what this movement has been teaching and reducing us to. And mm-hmm. I, so I think it's, it's damaged um, our witness to the world, but it's sadly also damaged Christian men and women mm-hmm. in our uh, marriages, in uh, the world of being a single man or woman, and being brothers and sisters in the church and in our discipleship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I would add to that. It, it always struck me when, when I came to the States how biblical manhood, as conceptualized by, say, CBMW, mm-hmm. uh, struck me as remarkably American in its orientation. Mm-hmm. And that's not a, a snotty 
British comment looking down on, on America. And upper so middle it class. Just, it just struck me as this is, maybe this works in America, but I'm not sure it, it would work in Britain. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't work in, in South Korea, for example. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, certainly in Britain in those days, with the exception of Boy George, as I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> it was a pretty clear distinction in, in the 70s and 80s in my world between boys and girls, men and women. I went to an all-boys school. Yeah. Pretty clear distinctions when you visit South Korea. There's very, very different roles for men and women in South Korean yeah. culture. And yet they don't track with the typical kind of model that's being put forward by, by CBMW. Do you have anything to say about that? Yeah, I mean, I would add that it's also a very upper middle class model. Um, And, you know, you talk to people, you know, working moms who have to work, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, You know, I remember my dad saying to me once in his neighborhood, you know, the stay-at-home mom is a status symbol of wealth. Right. Um, So it's just, you know, there's more meaningfulness behind it than that, I think, that, you know, women too are called vocationally to serve their community um, Mm -hmm. and their neighbor. And, you know, those can be in both paid and volunteer ways. But um, yeah, I I do think that there's an American flavor to it, but there's also very much a um, class flavor Mm -hmm. to it. You know, it's interesting, and you make this point um, in the book, and and even as it's been brought up here, um, you express sympathy for the cultural drivers that birthed CBMW. You express full sympathy with, with all of those concerns. And, and I agree with you completely on this point. Instead of the response being the birth of a movement and a whole parachurch ministry, the response should have been from the church to just simply uh, help beef up its, its discipling and preaching ministries to help show how the aberrations of, of gender fluidity and abortion and homosexuality and those kinds of things. But once a movement is birthed with a publishing arm and all of those and conferences and all of those kinds of things, suddenly now there has to be a reason for that movement to continue to subsist right. and staff and that kind of thing. And so what ended up happening was instead of targeting a specific problem through the church, like we have to do all the time, mm-hmm it ended up creating this large thing that, that in some ways, not in always, but in some ways kind of apes the, the, the problems that they're seeking to address. Now they, they have different answers, but they right. end up oftentimes doing, which is elevating a particular thing like gender to an all encompassing lens through which you see everything. Yeah. And, and so just as the left wing kind of feminist movement lifts that up to make it a lens through which everything is viewed, I fear that on the other side of things, that the same thing has happened. And you talk about I this in like the book. talking about that, like just that, you know, we would balk at a radical feminist, biblical feminist saying that the Bible is this patriarchal construction right. put together by the most powerful men. Right. You have um, that in your book. Yep. Yeah. But then we do the, we send the exact same message with the way that we market yeah. our resource, Christian resources, including study Bibles right. to men and women. Right. Yeah. And, and the Bible is so male authored and so male centered mm-hmm. that women need their own version to right. be able to understand and relate to it. 
Well, that segues into one of the questions, or a more sort of constructive question. Uh, you know, to me, the takeaway phrase was, uh, and it this is kind of a compliment for me, but it doesn't sound like it. It okay. verges. Backhanded <laughs> compliment. It, it verges on gibberish. Gynocentric <laughs> <laughs> interruption. Uh, I know what you mean by it, but it's kind of oh Great. man, now, it's that is pre- Blame that Richard Balkum. It's that's, his term. Yeah, it's an incredibly pretentious term. But anyway, oh, it's fabulous. Well, setting that, way, setting that aside, okay. House. I mean, it, okay. like you know. It comes from a so okay. much fun with that. It, it well, comes it, from a Brit. It comes from a Brit, yeah. so of oh, course oh, yeah. it's pretentious. Oh, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. hello. Uh, <laughs> I think he's a Cambridge grad as well. So, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, give us a Birdo-centric interruption. <laughs> know, I, you know, explain I'm to I'm a the bit listeners. of a Birdo-centric interruption right you know, now. It sounds like, <laughs> it sounds like, a, Carl. Sounds like a medical condition that <laughs> men would be terrified <laughs> to have described to them. What is a gynocentric interruption? So um, Bauckham explains how the woman's voice kind of operates in scripture. You, it is male-centered in, the, in its voice, androcentric. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, amazingly so, in such a patriarchal culture, especially since women were not educated, you know, in the same way, we've got the woman's voice functioning in scripture, and it, and it often interrupts the male voice. And what it does is it kind of tells the story behind the story. So he uses the book of Ruth as a key uh, model for that to where um, we, the story, this narrative is told from the feminine perspective of, you know, Ruth and Naomi. And you get to, to kind of see what's happening from, from their point of view, from a woman's point of view, from a widow's point of view, from a Moabite's point of view, um, from poverty and then uh, the story of God's Hesed love is being told throughout that book. But then at the end, you have this patrilineal genealogy. And it's, it's kind of, it's right. so abrupt of a change of gears. It's almost like it was cut and pasted there. And what you have at the end in the patrilineal genealogy is the same exact story, but told androcentrically, mm, really. Mm, mm. So he said that that's done on purpose to kind of show what you'd be missing um, if you didn't have. The, yeah. the feminine perspective there. Mm-hmm. So I kind of showed throughout a couple examples in scripture of how that mm-hmm. happened. I've always found just the last few verses of Ruth basically quite adequate for my understanding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. sure you know, it's have. interesting. Uh, a, f- a few years ago, I preached through, through Ruth and I loved it. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things that, that was so um, helpful, one of the, you know, it sound, it, one of the things that is so helpful about the book of Ruth is that it gives you, um, it, it sets up the tension for the need for divine intervention in a heightened way, precisely because women at that time who were widows and poor were particularly vulnerable. And, and so this, th- th- this female perspective actually heightens the, the tension, heightens the drama, yeah. which again, it never occurred to me as I was reading it, as I was preparing sermons and I was preaching it, it never occurred to me that because this is coming through the perspective of these two different women, primarily Mm -hmm. that it has less to do with me as a man. It just never occurred to me. And this brings me to one of the, one of the interesting moments I had when I was reading the book, your book on the idea of, of finding the woman's voice in scripture. When, uh, so months ago I had 
read where you had used that phrase, well, people went crazy. They thought that. I was like the biggest feminist right. uh, Criti agenda. Cr critical theory, that kind of thing. And so when yeah. I got to that chapter in the book, I was, I was kind of girding up my loins going, okay, this is going to be. Here we and, go, Amy. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and, and I will tell you as a guy who was ready to see, okay, is this going to be kind of critical theory? Uh, actually, what I read was the same kind of thing I heard growing up in conservative pulpits, which is, hmm. oh, here's the story of a woman in this part of, in this point of scripture. And here's what's unique about that. And here's what's valuable hmm. about that. And so I was, <laughs> I was actually kind of surprised at how uncontroversial it was. Well, I and was I, hoping that it would yeah. be truly complementary. And right. in the, in right. the truth, I mean, the woman's voice functions to make visible the invisible in mm -hmm. some ways. And, mm -hmm. and we need both. Right. Right. Um, but it really isn't about the woman or Boaz, right, right. it's about God's love, you know, mm -hmm. and that's what it all points to. Yeah. It was just, I, it was just an interesting moment because like I said, I didn't read anything there that was different from anything I heard, you know, growing up in, you know, from conservative pulpits, you well, know, that's and, awesome and, to hear. Well, yeah. It, and, and, and I, boy, and this is a whole nother podcast um, discussion, but how, how certain things are said, and then how they grow yeah. out there. As, Maybe we as, should do another podcast on that. <laughs> but could, I do want to say that, you know, that this whole dynamism there between the, the male and the female voice, I, mm -hmm. just, I just think that that's like an, a very important element to, it, it's interesting that when I talk about a female voice, then all right. of a sudden I'm supposed to be a feminist. Right. Then. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. Um, when I'm just like, like, like James Montgomery Boyce, like James Montgomery Boyce was crazy. right? <laughs> I mean, I'm just looking at God's word and I mean, you know, when you're a woman and you read that though, yeah, that's yeah. exciting because it means yeah. that, you know, you see that Ruth here and Naomi were tradents to the faith. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They were actively traditioning. They were handing down their story right. and you know, it, the book of Ruth was probably written by a man, mm -hmm. but he, heard it handed down from these yes. women. He had their right. perspective, their point of view. And that's really the point I wanted to make with yeah. that is that everybody, every disciple has a responsibility and a great honor to mm -hmm. hand down the tradition of the faith as disciples. If we were to look at that in terms of contemporary church, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're all committed to uh, male only ordination mm -hmm. on this right. program. We're all committed to the pulpit ministry on a Sunday being uh, being the preserve of, of a male. Mm -hmm. uh, what is a gynocentric? Oh, it's, it's almost painful for me to use the term. <laughs> what is a gyno? It's, kind of G, it's a GI problem. It's, it's, <laughs> what is a, I was in the a, hospital for that one time. Yeah. What does a gynecological intervention look like on a Sunday? <laughs> <laughs> what does a gynocentric interruption you know, look like on a Sunday? That's the question I'm trying to ask in the book. Um, and I do think we're going to uh, arrive at different applications to that, mm -hmm. especially even within different denominations. And when I was going through revisions of the book, my editor, I wanted it to be more widely read than just even the Reformed Church. Mm -hmm. And um, even though it has a Reformed flavor to it, and, and I'm writing within the bounds of my confessions um, in the right. PC, but, um, you know, there was some parts in it, especially in the middle where she was like, you know, your Presbyterian showing just a little too much here, you know, <laughs> and, and even the applicatory parts, I wanted to make sure to speak beyond the OPC. Right. 
Um, and why, why would you ever want to do that? <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to, you know, the applications are going to look different. Like, for example, in the OPC, we only have ordained men leading worship right. um, in, in reading scripture and things like that. Now, in an Anglican church, um, they have lay people reading scripture. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to, there's different questions to ask according to the different ecclesiological differences within right. denominations. So, and I, and I think that's great. And I do think that there's room for discussion even within mm-hmm. our own denominations of how that goes. I mean, when you walk into a church, do you notice a big difference to where it is so such a male culture that you don't see female contribution in any like intellectual, creative, right. theological stimulation kind of ways? Right. Are they only like serving in the nursery and the potluck and, right. and uh, with the children? Um, mm-hmm. I think those are important questions to ask. Now, you, I do think that the, the, the biggest parts that we have to look to in scripture for that Paul speaks most directly about it in First Corinthians, mm-hmm. and you see reciprocity there. Mm-hmm. Um, you see both men and women involved, even in worship, corporate worship. Um, and then, you know, I think there's such a picture of the fruit of the ministry in Romans 16, mm-hmm. and uh, the way uh, it's just so beautiful. Um, I used to think that was such a boring section of Scripture, just ending with a bunch of greetings, right. but um, it's just really come alive to me that is a living picture of the church and service, the body of Christ. And it's men and women shouldering right. side by side. And I've, I've preached that text in precisely those terms is mm-hmm. that it not just there, but in several of the greetings and closures of Paul's epistles. Right. I mean, it's have, all over right, the place. Right. You have a picture of a church where mm-hmm. men and women, though th- there may be a couple of roles that are, that are, you know, men preaching that kind of thing but 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 what you have is a is women who are highly integrated in the life and the ministry of of the church and and what we hear from uh, some of our folks in in the patriarchist camp um and i've had enough dealings with these folks now to know that what you're suggesting amy is not a caricature in terms of just shoving the women in in the small corner that is not a caricature of the position of some of these folks and so that corrective does need uh, to be offered. That's not shadow boxing. They're they really caricature o- themselves. I mean, right. they actually make jokes about what sandwiches they're eating that their wives make right. for them and talk about right. barefoot and pregnant stuff. I mean, right. Right. it's, it's yeah. shameful. It's yeah. shameful. I, it shouldn't be in our denominations. I agree. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, it's worth mentioning that we did see Matt delivering a cup of coffee to Amy <laughs> That's on right. the screen a little while ago. That's, That's true right. service. So I'm, I, well, That's I'm beginning to think that maybe uh-huh. there's a little bit more to this. Amy, Amy is rather <laughs> <laughs> Matt is under the thumb yeah. than we've been told. Yeah, well, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, now, it, it's um, one of the things I've, I've, I've got your book open to um, uh, just in, in your processing of the whole categories of biblical manhood and womanhood. Um, Okay. Again, a, a, an area where I agree with you, and we and we talked about this going back to the to the whole Trinity debate in the summer of 2016. Um, mm-hmm. you, you have a comment on page 105. My aim in life is not to be constantly looking for male um, leadership, and and I agree with that. I I don't think my wife uh, has been called to be on the lookout each day <laughs> for how she can honor the headship of every male she encounters in her life. That's anathema to me. And quite honestly, it's, it's offensive to me. 
Mm -hmm. to, to even consider thinking of my wife in those terms. And yet, and this is where it goes back to some of the theology, and you point this out in a chapter in your book where you deal with this doctrine of the eternal subordination of the Son. Some of these applications, and, and you know, we, we've talked about the whole thing, how can a man ask directions of a woman while still making sure that, that she understands she's subordinate to him? Those are questions that have been raised out of this camp. Um, yeah. yeah. In yeah, their that, book. That, yes. On Yes. Biblical manhood. Yes. Woman. It's not a caricature. It really is there. Mm -hmm. And the reason why that gets in there, I, I suspect, is because they ground this ontological subordination. They ground it in the Trinity. Mm -hmm. um, and, and of course, we're here that they're, you know, saying, no, you, you can't do that. And you also point this out in the book as well, where, where they see roles of subordination and authority being preserved in the, in the new creation. Yeah. And what they do is they say, well, since, since Adam seems to have had this, this, uh, th this task of, of primary leadership, and that was before the fall, then it's creational. But, but my retort to that is, if something is creational, if something was happening before the fall in creation, that does not mean that it is eternal um, in, in the new heavens and the new earth. There are certain things that were fit for this temporary life, even before the fall, that aren't necessarily preserved um, in, in the new creation. But again, if you have the presupposition that this is, that this is even present in the Trinity, then you have to, to make it normative and definitive for, the, for your whole life. Therefore, you as a woman must always be in a constant state of anxiety as to how you are going to properly honor my headship. And, and I just can't find that in the Bible. Well, it's, it's an oddly... Uh if I can turn the knife at this point, it's an oddly culturally Marxist approach <laughs> to reality, <laughs> where, where everything is reduced to power relations. Yes. Mm. I mean, that's... Yeah, it, it, right. You know, and, that, and that's the danger, of course, when you allow... When you basically define yourself in opposition right, to, to that another which error. you reject, yeah. you end up using the same terms of debate. And it's, yeah. it's very interesting to me in, in seeing this, you know, feminist versus patriarchist kind of uh, dialectic that's going mm -hmm. on, that essentially it's a debate about power uh, and everything is being reduced to power relations, mm -hmm. which is woefully simplistic understanding of human existence. And actually, as I say, you know, uh, arguably a sort of a Marxist slash Nietzschean kind of mm -hmm. approach to, mm -hmm. to reality. So very, very interesting yeah. as, a, as a philosophical yeah. phenomenon. And, and it takes away from the true story our bodies are telling mm. and even the order of creation. Um, our focus and our aim is the same. It's eternal mm -hmm. communion with the triune God, but we pursue that as male and as female. So our masculinity and femininity, it's going to, come out as a fragrance in that. Um, and I think that, that looking at it this proper way, then that adds to the story of Christ's spousal love for his bride, the church. Um, what story are our bodies telling as male and female? Um, why was Eve created second? Uh, and, and all of these questions are good questions. It's, she wasn't created second because uh, to show she's subordinate to the man, but um, She's created second, I argue, as an eschatological marker. She is showing uh, in her very body, her very creation order, what we are all to become, the bride of Christ. And so male 
represents the lover and female represents the beloved. And the, there was this, and Pope John Paul II talks about this in his wonderful paper on the dignity of women, just how this order uh, of love is really what highlights the dignity of woman. Interesting. Yeah. The, the, the well-known liberal Pope John Paul II. Yeah, exactly. You make this comment in, in your chapter on um, biblical manhood and womanhood. I am not denying the order needed in both my personal household and the household of God, but I do not reduce the rights and obligations in a household to mere authority and submission roles. Well, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. You know, and again, and, and I say that to say, if you and I have disagreements, they're going to be more in the area of certain applications, not in principle here, because I, I fully affirm what you say about that. And, and so, and I say that in part to, to let other reasonable complementarians know mm-hmm. that what they're hearing from the patriarchalists out there is, is not accurate. And I wouldn't be saying this if it was accurate. <laughs> I would have probably found a, an excuse to be sick today. Um, <laughs> So yeah, just you so weren't you late know. turning up, Tom. <laughs> that you'd, uh, you know, it was like when I was interviewing the Archbishop of Philadelphia, suddenly everybody else has gone away. Before we wrap up, uh, Amy, any last words for the audience? Uh, yeah. Um, any, any humble apologies, confessions, repentances, <laughs> abject, uh, groveling? I do think that a humble confidence is called for here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as the author of this book, I do expect for it to be engaged and for there to be differences in some things there. Uh, I want to offer generosity in that way. And I hope that that's reciprocated to me. But, um, you know, I wrote this book out of a passion really to write about discipleship and the church's responsibility um, to disciple as a covenant community. Um, and, and how that affects how we read our Bibles and, and how we have our responsibility to one another as lay people, um, as men and women. But um, in talking to my editor, I hit a lot of roadblocks even before getting to my editor as being a woman wanting to write about this because of the whole gender element to it or sex element to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so I would just like to, you know, that's why the title is what it is because my editor said, you need to address the roadblock. Mm-hmm. And there is a movement that we are swimming in right now and, you know, quote unquote, complementarian churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and it needs to be directly engaged. Now, I don't think that, you know, I don't want to be uh, vicious about it. Um, I would like to have good conversations. Mm-hmm. But I do think that we need to ask the question. Um, there's a lot of men and women in complementarianism who do not agree with the teaching in this movement. They right. know it is wrong but they're not willing to do anything about mm-hmm, it mm-hmm. because it costs something. Yeah. And so yep. this, that's why this book is out there. Yep. And let me just say that as a, a, a pastor of a church that affirms small C complementarianism, you know, um, I would not tolerate that patriarchy stuff in the church I serve. I, I would just not um, tolerate it. And I'm very thankful that that's not a battle I've had to fight yeah. in our church. The Lord's protected us. Well, that's from that. nice. Because some churches yeah. are having to battle. It's all over. Yep. And I, I do want to say too, real quickly, that I hope this book is a challenge for both complementarians and egalitarians to right. read. Right. I've really sought out to do that. I've made a lot of egalitarian friends mm-hmm. whom I highly respect and have been sharpened by. And um, 
and I've been challenged in, in my research for this and I continue to learn and I'm still mm-hmm. learning, you know, so. Yeah. And, and, and I know we've gone a little bit long with this one and that's okay. Um, uh, but, but before Carl wraps this up, I did want to say this also that um, this is not a treatise for egalitarianism at all. Um, uh, again, in several places, as I've already pointed out, um, Amy affirms just exactly what I believe and what every uh, traditional complementarian believes about um, how the church is led and, and those kinds of things. Um, so you won't find any real controversy there. The other thing, Amy, and, and I, I would love to have more time to talk about this, but I just wanted to make this one comment and then I'll turn it over to Carl. Um, you know, you, you, you talk about the rise of the parachurch really taking the lead in these kinds of issues. And, you know, that was helpful because one of the things that occurs to me is that as a pastor, I deal with these issues among people that I know, you know, these are people I know that they're not an abstract out there. These are congregants who I know and I care about. They're they're not an abstract. They're not an idea. These are, these are people. And and this is why we need the church leading the way in, in, in these things because, because instead of reducing this to just simply an an abstract uh, or an idea, we need to remember that you know, the, the, the women in the church where I serve as a pastor are a part of God's beloved flock. Um, they're, they're not something that I need to fear. They're not a group that's, that's out to get me and I need to treat with, with a level of suspicion. Um, and it would never occur to me to think about the women in the church where I serve. And, and that's, why, that's why these issues are best dealt with, even though we know there are goofy people, but best dealt with within the church with people who know each other and care about each other and are seeking to disciple one another, you know, so, so I'm, I'm glad you addressed that. Thank you. That unfortunate. Yeah. I think that's kind of what's behind a lot of this. Right. Right. Yeah. If I can, uh, at this point do an Anglo centric interruption. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Just want to say, uh, thanks very much, Amy. It's been fun interviewing the most dangerous woman in Christmas. <laughs> uh, the most dangerous book since Michael Servetus was burned at the stake in uh, the <laughs> 1950s. Um, no, it's been, uh, it's been good to talk, Amy. Uh, thanks for, for the book. Uh, if you have deep concerns and worries about uh, Amy, please visit our website, uh, <laughs> mortificationofspin.org, and make a donation. And the bigger don- the donation, the more likely it is we're going to deal decisively with at some point. So please, uh, a monotocentric intervention on our website would be, uh, would be most welcome at this point. You also get a chance uh, there to enter to win a copy of Amy's book, which you can then burn <laughs> burning at uh, your church's next potluck uh, supper slash book burning. Uh, in the meantime, uh, we look forward to Amy writing on a, uh, it's hard to imagine where she's going to go with her next book to cause more trouble. But I oh, I'm not causing any trouble. I'm writing on something awesome. This is the. This is not the last gynocentric interruption <laughs> the church will have experienced. Uh, will experience at the hands of this woman. So we look forward to the next controversial tome. Todd and I look forward to the next time we've got to try to get her off the hook. Uh, and in the meantime, we will look forward to being with you next week. Sometimes it's hard to be a woman Giving all your love to just one
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about Revelation and inscripturation was a progressive process in which God gave us his people the canon, but over a long period of time, and he did it in wonderful ways, most ultimately in in giving us uh, his own son. That interview is next time. Join us then. How are we going to get Amy off the hook anyway here, Todd? We're in, well, we, that's a great we could, question. We could use this to destroy her, <laughs> to bring her back from the dead. What should we do? I'm well, you know what? Amy, these are the 27 away. serious concerns I have about your book <laughs> relative Amy, to basic Christian orthodoxy. A- a- Amy, you will be relieved to know, you will be relieved to know that over the last couple of days, as I was reading your book, I found myself disagreeing with it far less than I thought I would. I knew you yeah. would. It, well, it's really interesting. And again, you know, the, the title you. is provocative. Yeah. I know. But, but I, Not my idea. Hey, Tom. I'm, I'm sure. But are I was... You, are you going I, over to the dark side? <laughs> I mean, I, was, I actually was surprised that my points of disagreement, which were far less than I thought there would be, have much more to do with certain applications rather than principles. I, yes. I did not expect that. Yeah. And so I was actually. Why, Todd? Why? <laughs> no, I think you should why say. Why were you not expecting that? You know, I, I had my suspicions about Todd since he started wearing those glorious Steinem t-shirts. <laughs> Have you read the new exegetical preaching blog online now at exegeticalpreaching.com? Ideal for pastors, church leaders, anyone interested in biblical exegesis. Zondervan Bibles, in collaboration with Dr. Jonathan Pennington of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and his students, provides the content updated twice each month. Find examples of how to exegete a passage for a sermon or for your personal use. To sign up for the blog, visit exegeticalpreaching.com. Sponsored by the new Zondervan Comfort Print NASB 95 Bible. Discover the difference.